Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment is the first movement in the Credo section of the Bach Mass in B minor, Credo in Unum Deum. Credo in unum Deum, I believe in one God. That's the entire text of this movement. When the movement ends, we get a little pause, but then we jump right into the second movement of the Nicene Creed portion of this whole big work called the Mass in B minor. So, getting a little context here, we've got a huge work here that's like two hours long, and this is right in the middle of it. It's about halfway through, and we just had a first half that had 12 movements, and based on the Gloria text of the ancient mass liturgy of the church, and that ended spectacularly and gloriously, and there was probably a nice intermission at the concert you were at if you saw this. And then, when you walked back in, the orchestra, maybe they tuned, and then we were about to hear the beginning of this movement, which starts out with a solo tenor voice singing. When we performed this at uh, Concordia University, Irvine, the tenors had to memorize that note out of nowhere. In fact, the orchestra did not tune between halves, if I remember correctly, so the tenors just had to know that note. And then just had to find it. So credo, I believe, right? In unum, in one, and then deum, meaning God. And that's the entire text for this movement, right? It's the start of the Nicene Creed, which is sort of a classic statement of faith for the Christian faith and set to music here like so many other composers have done. Now, is it a brilliant and wonderful way to set the words, I believe in one God, to set them in all these different voice parts all floating all around like in a fugue, like what we're hearing here? I mean, yeah, it's kind of amazing and it shows how all these different people are saying that they believe in God. But also, Bach really also loved to write in fugues and so many of these movements are in a fugal way. So, I mean, that's probably just part of it also to be to be real about it. But it's, it's beautiful nonetheless. And I'm going to get into why I love this so much. I just, I have a lot to uh, <laughs> unpack here because it's so cool. The background of this is that Christian and I, even though we both know this whole thing, Mass and B minor, pretty well, and we've we've nerded out a lot on this. Just before we started recording, we we were playing this, and we were still discovering all these new layers to it. It is it contains multitudes. This little movement here, this two two minute and change little movement, because of the way Bach constructs this, because of the fugue because he was a master of fugue, but because it's just organized and puzzled together in such a beautiful way. 
an elegant way, really. And it can have so many metaphorical meanings, right? In episode 20, we talked about a perfectly constructed small fugue that had the words set to it, basically asking for a blessing or guaranteeing that God will bless you, your family, your new family. Yeah. And in that way, the people who are singing that in fugue are sort of like all the people that are part of your community, right? Saying like, we're going to stand with you and God's going to be with you and and um, you're going to have a healthy life and everything. And in this case, like you're saying, Alex, it's even more interesting because like on the one hand, yes, Bach wrote fugues all over the mass in B minor. But on the other hand, to just hear one voice, and I love how the Netherlands Bach Society does this. They just start with one per part in this choral music, right? Right. They make then, that choice. Some some groups, like I said, how we have done it before at, the, at Concordia, have all the tenors singing here and all the other groups, all the bassists singing when they come in, etc. But yes, you're right, Christian. They start with just soloists on this. In the yeah, Netherlands. so it's like this, It's the metaphor here is that this one man stands up and he's like, I believe this. And then another person stands up and says, I believe this also. And then I believe this and I believe this. And we're all united, but we're not going to sing it all at the same time. We're all going to sing it in our own in our own range. And when women's voices come in, they sing it musically at a higher pitch. And also some of the men's and women's parts are at different pitches, some lower, some higher, as if metaphorically speaking, you know, everybody has different demeanors about them, right? Everyone's different and everyone has their own role in the society or community or whatever this is, but they all have this shared thing that they have in common that unites them. And it's kind of chaotic that they're all saying it starting at a different time and on a different note. But within that chaos is the like the musical perfection of the fact that the counterpoint all works. Otherwise, this would sound like nonsense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. Like going along with that metaphor, like if the composer had made this so that it sounded discordant, for, so that each vocal part sounded discordant from each other vocal part, it would send the message that, well, these people are all saying they believe in one God, but are they really unified in this belief? Because it sounds bad. You know, like that's what it, that's what you get when music is bad, right? And so that's why we're blessed to have Bach, who put this stuff together so elegantly that it, it totally will work, and it does not sound bad if it's performed well, as it, of course, it is here. Talking about the instrumentation that's happening here, well, let's look at the vocal parts first. There's five, right? We're used to hearing that there are four main voice groups, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, and that's going from highest to lowest sounds, right? Well, there are five here, and Bach does this frequently um, in, in the Mass in B minor. He splits the sopranos up into two, so you really have soprano one, soprano two, alto, tenor, and then bass. There are also two independent violin parts in this particular movement. And then there is also the continuo part, which, as we've discussed a little bit in the past, is the bass part that would be played by the organ pedals or the organ left hand, basically the low notes of the organ, and also the low string instruments together. And the organ, as you'll hear in this recording, plays some chords based on that continuo part off of the figured bass, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Not critical to our discussion here, but just suffice it to know that you'll hear the organ at the beginning of the movement, especially because there's only a tenor voice and the continuo playing at the beginning. So you easily hear this little... Well, it's not easily heard, actually. It's pretty soft, but you can listen for it. Some organ stuff happening um, besides just the low notes. (laughs) 
man, those low notes. I mean, listen to how they start. Right after the tenor begins, listen to what happens in the bass in the continual part there at the low strings and the low organ. You get this little walking bass thing that's just a very consistent sounding rhythm, right? Just bum, 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 bum. It's almost jazzy. Like it's it sounds like a it sounds like you're taking that double bass for a for a walk on the on the jazz standard right there, you know. And it's it goes through the whole thing, and it's just it creates this um, sort of framework for the rest of the counterpoint to play off of. It's kind of kind of the rhythm section, in a way. Yeah. And and it is not part of the fugue. Just to be technically clear here, like. The, the melody that you hear, the people singing credo, that is its own particular long notes worth of melody yeah. coming from a, a source that's basically like an ancient chant, right? It almost sounds like if you took it in, out by itself, it would just be this austere thing from Gregorian chant. But that whole setting that it's in with this walking bass line, it really gives it some context. And that's really not part of the fugue, but it supports it underneath. It's the same thing we heard in a few episodes ago with the Erzegnet das Haus Israel fugue. Exactly the same concept. Yeah. And similarly to that one, after you have the five voices enter with their subject, their credo in unum deum melody that they share, then the violin, uh, both violin parts, violin two and violin one, enter with that same melody. Yeah, but you know what, Alex? I noticed there's a difference here. This is actually far more complicated than the than the cantata one that we looked at the other time. Yeah. So, so the cantata that we looked at, it's it's essentially a four voice fugue with a bass line, and we talked about this. the The four parts come in one at a time. The voices come in. You can clearly hear the voices singing: soprano, then alto, then tenor, then bass. And then by the time the voices are dwindling away, you've noticed that the strings have started taking over. But they picked up where the voices began. Right. And um, then voices are added to string parts. But there are never actually... The strings do play some parts in the middle there alone. But there are never actually more than four parts going on at the same time. But this one, there totally is, right? Yeah. Seven total, right? Yeah. Three... So actually... Oh, sorry. Five separate vocal parts and two separate violin parts and then there is also that continuo bass and when Bach is writing this he's he's needing to take that into consideration too as a separate line that's right it all has to work together and we did a little almost preview of this didn't we in in that other episode when we talked about how much work it is for composers to check every part against every other part to make sure all the rules yeah. are legal and we decided that if you had four parts like say you were writing a piece for choir or string quartet and um, you were working with four parts as a composer, you'd have to check six parts. And as it happens, we stumbled upon a piece of paper here where I'd written down years ago how many parts I'd had to check for some stuff I was working on. And yeah, with seven parts, you have to check 21 pairs. That's just how it works. Like if you imagine seven people in a room and everyone has to shake hands, then that's 21 handshakes, I guess you could say, right? Right, and it's not just the number times three either, because like with six voices you have to check 15 pairs 
Um, with eight voices, you have to check 28. And Alex, you pointed out that the bass line also has to be correct within this texture and not break any rules as well. And that means that there's kind of eight parts here, isn't there, when it's at its most? So that means that there are 28 interacting pairs at any one time, sometimes in this music, that which is a musical texture that is extremely complicated, right? Yeah, and you can't just like look at it all vertically as a composer and be like, all right, I got eight separate voices going on. So in the next chord, I guess I can move this voice here and this voice here and this voice here. You can't do that because you also have to be considering the horizontal line because you need to. it needs to sound melodic. I mean, there needs to be, and sometimes you have to have an actual melody happen in here that has to be a specific, it has to be a specific tune yeah, that so you set up. These have to all work as melodies independently, but then together they all have to work harmonically. That's the sort of beauty of Baroque music, but also the challenge for the composer. And you've heard Alex and me talk about sometimes that the composers are trying to avoid breaking rules with all of these different pairs of parts and stuff. And there really are rules. I mean, there are there are a few moves between two pairs that are not legal. You know, they're not allowed. And there's reasons for that we won't get into now, but there are things like that. Yeah. And there are ways that two or three or more parts interact that are not what you would do in this style of music. And the composers knew that and they worked very hard to keep in style, you could say, I guess. Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes it pretty much impossible for modern day composers to fake music like not that you would need to because there's so much of it but to fake music of the baroque era or the classical era or whatever like to make it sound authentic if you were trying to write something that sounded like this i mean it's so complex i mean we we go i mean maybe we harp on this a little a little much like in the last couple episodes especially but just like the reason why we say it so often is because we're trying to <laughs> we're trying to explain to you just how complex this is it really is that hard to put this stuff together it really is that magnificent of an achievement for a composer to do this and this is one of the reasons why Bach is so treasured as a composer I had a composition teacher at Cal State Fullerton harping about how Bach and Handel was basically the last generation that were actually really trained hard in the craft of musical composition and trained from like a young age and just absolutely intense training, which uh, didn't happen after that. Of course, I don't know. I mean, clearly there was a lot of training on the part of all the famous composers, but it is true that from Bach's time and before, there was a different level of rigor associated with writing music. It had to be perfect in these certain harmonious ways that it really doesn't have to be anymore. Our tastes have changed in the modern day. And like you said, Alex, people could imitate Baroque music very accurately, but there might be some unknown element that we might not be able to get right still. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, music, pop music, especially of today, is it's not that it's less valuable in some way, but it it, the argument can't be made that it's more like harmonically complex. I mean, something like this versus that, it's it's just a, an untenable argument. But the idea that that music, you know, that you don't have to have the same level of rigor as a as a music student to come up with something that's catchy or or 
and not just like catchy pop music, but like just think of like the music of the Beatles or something. Like that stuff is great and amazing. It's it's just it's not that that's not real music or that you have to have this background. It's just that in that era, in the era that we're talking about of the Baroque era, the the best stuff that was made in that era was made by people who had a lot of skill that was fostered through a lot of education and yeah. a lot of good opportunities yeah. too. Let's be real about it in that way too. It's like it, Bach was blessed with a lot of good opportunities too, besides his amazing skill and his amazing teachers and everything like that. Yeah. You couldn't really just sort of be a self-taught Baroque composer. Right. I mean, who, who was going to actually teach you? And the, the reason for that is that because everyone worked in the same style. Whereas Nowadays, you could actually legitimately self-teach in some ways, depending on the musical style you're trying to work in. Yeah, and even as early as like late Romantic era, you'd, you'd have some composers who were self-taught, like, uh, like Mazorsky, for example, mm-hmm. famously self-taught. And, and that just wouldn't have happened here. But anyways, that's, that's an important point to make, I think. Let's look at this really, really simple melody that's only seven notes. Just seven syllables, each with its own note. Credo in unum deum. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And here's how that melody sounds. So really those first five notes are the ones you hear the most often because most of the time, once you get to the word deum, the sixth and seventh notes, that's when another voice will come in during that word. So it gets a little lost there and you'll hear the other voice come in on the word credo on the long note on cre. And so then you mostly are just hearing five notes, really, that sixth and seventh one uh, being lost a little. So here's how it sounds when you hear the tenor start and then you hear the bass enter. So listen for that, and first listen for the bass to come in on cre, on this note. Cre, right there. And see if you can hear the bass enter, and the tenor should also still be singing some other stuff. Doesn't this melody sound almost more, way more ancient than even box time, right? I mean, this melody is basically appropriated from chant, which is the oldest form of notated music we have in the Western world. And you can just hear, if you just think of it by, by itself, it it doesn't sound like Bach at all, right? You just played it by, by itself and with only one other part. And without that bass line and without all of the other environment that it's in, it almost sounds like medieval or Renaissance music. Doesn't it does. It? And if, if you did this without the continuo, I, I'm sure it would sound so much more like Renaissance music. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, if you think like, Credo in unum deum. That's like something that would be in a Latin mass, right? In fact, I think Bach just changed one note, maybe even to make it work. I, I'm pretty sure there is one of the normal credos that is Credo in unum deum, hmm. which is the same seven notes, but one is different. He changed it maybe to make his fugue work nicer. Yeah which is something I'm just realizing right now, but sometimes you hear old recordings of masses, like Renaissance masses, where the composers actually don't don't set that phrase to music themselves. They just use the old one, which is the one I just sang. 
then they go on to the next part of the mass where they they create a musical setting. But here, I mean, among many of the other strange and wonderful things about the mass in B minor, Bach wrote this entire minute of music out in this incredibly complex way. Yeah, let's let's try and follow this as it goes through its seven entrances. Now, just so you can kind of get the scope of this, there are seven entrances of that main melody that we talked about, right? And after each one enters, it will that particular voice will just keep going on its own melodic stuff and just kind of float around and do all these cool melodic things on its own. It is literally impossible to follow them all with your brain. I mean, it's like trying to listen to seven conversations together, but a lot more harmonious than that, right? Because it still works really nicely together. But the challenge here I would like you to do is to listen for the entrances. So when an entrance comes in, then you can ignore the previous voice. So you hear the tenor first and then the bass, right? We've already done that. The next one to listen for is a higher voice, the alto voice, right? Kind of a medium range. Then the next one will be the soprano one, the highest one. Then the fifth one, which is a little harder to hear because it's in the middle, is the soprano two. So I'll call those out. So let's listen for it, starting with the tenor. Then we know the bass is coming here. Okay, here comes the alto. Now listen for the soprano one, higher notes. Soprano two. Okay, I'm, I'm quickly pausing so that we can jump back and listen to the soprano two again. The note is this. But it's kind of in the middle of the texture, so it's hard to hear. Let's listen for that. Okay, now, during this texture, this is where it gets tricky. And if you're looking at a score, this helps, although you... It's one of those things where it's hard to it's hard to follow along with this score unless you're musically literate for sure, but um, it might help to check it out. And the next thing that happens is these these subjects, right? These these little melodies of seven notes that we talked about on the words credo in unum deum, right? They happen again. They enter again. Typically, it's like one of the voices has stopped for a bit and, and got a chance to catch their breath for maybe a couple seconds while the other voices are still going on. Then that voice that got a chance to break will come in again with the main melody. It happens with the tenor first. And it happens in a slightly different note than what the tenor had before. But here's how that sounds. And then the alto has it right after. Then the soprano two, and the soprano one, and then we get the bass, but this time the bass is all stretched out in even longer notes. This is called augmentation. So the bass is going to sing this melody but twice as slow over everything else that's still happening fast. And that sounds like this. Okay, 
block really gives us seven entrances and then seven more entrances and it's all weaved in this structure. It's just, it's astounding really how this is all put together. And there's a little clue here too about the key that we're in, which I love. Like listening to this, it does not, this is such a, this is such a minor thing. <laughs> minor is maybe the wrong word to use because it's literally major key. <laughs> but like, <laughs> this is such a, a little thing. But the fact is, is that we start when what feels like the key of A. And then the second statement of the subject is in the fourth away instead of the fifth, instead of the dominant that we would think. And we're like, huh, that's weird. But that's actually a clue. It's a clue that we're actually in D. It's a clue that the first subject was in the dominant, and it's a clue that we're actually not gonna stay in A at all. And it's a clue that at the end of this movement, when we hit that A at the end, it kind of feels weird. It doesn't feel like it's home yet. It's like, why? Because we started in A, it should feel like home. I thought that was the rule, right? But no, it turns out that A is the dominant, and like we've talked about before, that means it still needs to get to the tonic. Yeah, it hasn't gone home yet. Even though the, the whole entire passage of music has ended, it's not really ended because it's not musically resolved, right? Exactly. And, and half cadence, actually. We talked about cadences already. Yeah, it ends podcast. on the dominant. And, yeah. and it's so weird because it started on that A, so it's it really messes with you as you're listening to it. And then there's that pause at the end of the credo movement, right? And like we talked about, it segues into the next movement about Father Almighty, right? Maker of heaven and earth, Patrem Omnipotentem. And that one starts... And I'd love to talk about that too, but that's got to be another episode sometime because we don't have time. <laughs> but like, that's that one's amazing. And the one before this, by the way, the one that ends the first half of the whole work uh, is Cum Sanctus Spiritu, which is my favorite, I think, movement in the whole yeah. thing. It's so amazing. And so we got to get to that another time. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, my point about this whole dominance thing and the tonic thing is that once we hit this second thing, once we hit this patrem omnipotentem, this like Father Almighty thing, we then start to feel like it's heading toward D again. And the timpani come in, the big drums, right? And they, they're in A or A and D. And that means that it's like the dominant and the tonic. And we hear a lot of D now. And then we finally get to the end. We get a nice, um, we get a nice cadence at the end of this movement that is actually in D and finally feels final, right? It's a perfect cadence. Mm-hmm. And that musically represents what's happening in the text because when you speak the creed, this is only the very first line, right? You say, I believe in one God, and then that's it. By the way, that's this whole movement. Right. Then going on, you go on to say, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so on and so on. And so it goes on to list some aspects of religious faith. And because of that, this is the, only the beginning. And because of that, Bach chose to leave it a little bit open-ended, which makes a lot of sense, I think. Yeah. One more thing about the the way that Bach uses the violins as parts, like Alex, you were mentioning uh, in a previous episode, it's so cool how Bach likes to weave in the instrumental parts with and without the voices in in these complex musical textures. 
here we know that the two violin parts are actually completely independent of the voice parts the whole time. Right. And since violins can play higher than sopranos can sing, you also hear them sometimes going above the soprano one part and the soprano two part, which is also really nice. But I think the metaphor that we've talked about already is even stretched more interestingly by these violins, right? You've got one man saying, I believe this, and then another person saying, I believe the same thing, but my, you know, my voice is, it sounds a little different because I'm a different person and so on and so forth. Yeah. Different people of different ages and things. And the violins also come in, but they don't even have to say words to confess it. They can just, maybe that's a thought or maybe that's a child's voice or maybe it's a person who can't speak or maybe it's representational, you know, pick and choose what makes the most sense to you. But it, you could definitely extend a really interesting metaphor yeah, to that. Yeah, maybe it's somebody well. that speaks a different language than you. That, right. But you're still getting the... You're like, oh, I know that. I know that. I know that melody. You know, like, I know that sentiment. I know what they're trying to say. Yeah, or maybe it's the echoes of everyone already resounding mm, yeah. the thing. There's so many different, you know, things you could think about. Yeah. Yeah, and all those metaphors are valid, which is what speaks to the power of metaphor in music. And it's what you make it, and maybe make it is the wrong term. It's it's what your consciousness tells you that it is, right? That's kind of the one part of the metaphor of music thing that we haven't talked about much yet is that your brain does it for you in many ways. I mean, you can analyze it later and like like we're thinking of things that this could be, but like right now, but a lot of times your brain will just make that connection for you and you'll have a revelation and be like, oh, this is what this is about, at least for me. And that's mm-hmm. it's pretty special because it's unique to each person. And now here is the movement Credo in Unum Deum in its entirety. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Mass in B minor, 
please see the link in the episode description to see the performance by the Netherlands Box Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your app and hit subscribe. Check out our Facebook, Instagram, and our website. And it goes a long way if you give us a rating and a review. Yeah. All right. So, Christian, what's up next for episode 24 of A Moment of Bach? We will spend our first moment in the Goldberg Variations, BWV 988, the keyboard work. And we'll look at variation number 18, which is a canon. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Thank you.